Occasionally, I get asked, who's the most interesting person you've ever interviewed? It's an unanswerable question. Fortunately for me, there are too many to pick one. But I'll say this, Clarence Jones is part of that conversation. Welcome to another episode of Before the Cheering Started. I'm Bud Mishkin. Clarence Jones. Don't know the name? You should. He's arguably the most unsung hero of the civil rights movement. For eight years, he served as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s attorney, advisor, and occasional speechwriter, almost always working behind the scenes to help the movement. There are numerous other memorable chapters of his life, such as his role as a mediator at Attica in 1971, and being the first African-American to be named an allied member of the New York Stock Exchange. But during this interview, my third with Clarence Jones, now 92, we focused on his civil rights era work, because it's the week that we observe 60 years since the March on Washington, August 28th, 1963. What's this week been like for you, Clarence? It's been a uh, uh, psychologically. It's been a roller coaster, and by that I mean um, it has uh, required me, compelled me, because I had no choice, to uh, to go back in time sixty years and to. Uh, Almost, almost be in a stereophonic um, um, chronology, stereophonic chronology, in which you're talking about, you're talking in the present about things that occurred 60 years ago, and you are relating those things that you're talking about in the present to those things that occurred 60 years ago. And um, part of it was very difficult for me. It still is very difficult. Uh, I know so? that Reverend Al Sharpton and Jonathan Greenblatt did, and others did the best they could. Um, um, but uh, you know, they only captured they only captured a little bit of what sixty years was ago. Of course, that's that's uh, I, as I say that I might think that's probably an unfair comparative bar uh, to hold over their heads, but that's the way it is. You once told me with a smile and a laugh that when you, uh, when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. first uh, met you and came to your house in California at the time, and then you attended uh, his sermon, on a, on a Sunday in church in the Los Angeles area. And you said to me with a smile, you do not want Martin King calling you out in public, even without using your name to get yeah. you to do something. And you looked at me and smiled before and said, because before 1300 people in a Baptist church, no, he has, you don't stand a chance. No, you don't stand a chance. And by the way, one of the first times I ever heard him speak, you know, I mean, in, in such a closed, contained supporters. I mean, he was mesmerizing, absolutely mesmerizing. I mean, I never heard anybody 
of any kind of uh, um, background that is um, philosophical background or religious background or ethnic or racial. And I just didn't I'd never heard another human being use words with such power as he did. And you had initially turned him down, yes? Yeah, I turned him down because you see, he um, he, he was brainwashed by a, by a Judge Hubert Delaney, who was his chief defense counsel in New York. And uh, uh, Judge Delaney kept telling Dr. King and some of the other lawyers, oh, if I can just get my good friend Clarence Jones to come aboard, you know, we're going to have such a legal, a great team, because uh, Judge Delaney had high respect for my legal research, legal memo writing skills, I guess, you know. And when I heard that uh, the skills that he was seeking to have me use and apply were going to be used and applied in Birmingham, in Montgomery, Alabama, I said, I don't think so, Judge. No, that's not for me. And uh, so uh, Dr. King had, Dr. King had come, and, come to see me on a Friday before the Sunday afternoon uh, where, when he spoke to me. Um, and I, 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 I didn't anticipate, other than being polite, that anything else would occur. And then you go to see him speak. Oh, I write, I tell everybody, I had never seen any, any human being, um, any, 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 any human being who had all the normal attributes of being a human being, you know what I mean? Head, arms, mouth, feet, and all that stuff. You know, I, I, I never seen anybody. And he was mesmerizing. And I, 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 I remember this, the text of his sermon was, the role and responsibility of the, um, the role and responsibility of the educated, more fortunate, uh, Negroes to assist our less fortunate brothers and sisters who were struggling for their freedom in the South. So I, I thought that, I thought too, he was smart to, first of all, he was smart to choose this venue because the venue he was choosing was like the equivalent of what I call Black Beverly Hills. If you, were the, you know, mm -hmm. the, uh, the opinion makers. The power brokers in in, in, uh, in Black Los Angeles. If you were anybody and had any degree of professional expertise or power, uh, you were, and you lived, and you could afford it, you most likely lived in Baldwin Hills. So, so when he says, and there's a young man sitting, his, you see, he had been he visited my house on this Friday evening, and uh, tried to get on my good side, I guess. And I said, No, Doctor, I wish I could help you, <laughs> but I turned him down. And then he gives a sermon. I mean, it, it, I mean he, he was unbelievable. Uh, there's a young man uh, sitting in this church today, this morning. <laughs> my friends in New York tell me, uh, they're my friends in New York for whom I have great respect. They tell me that this young man, a young lawyer, his brains have been touched by Jesus. So I'm saying, well, they tell me anytime this young lawyer goes into the law library and reads, does any research on any problem. He goes all the way back to the time of 1066. William the Conqueror 
and something else he mentioned. And I'm, I kept thinking to myself, what does Dr. King know uh, really about what he's talking about? I mean, but he went, but he seemed to have a, a masterful knowledge of British constitutional law history. Because the description of this person who eventually he tried to make me believe he was talking about me, because his description of me was so far off from the reality of who I was and felt, I, 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 didn't, I didn't take it seriously. You know, in fact, I took it so unserious. I said to myself, uh, and I said to uh, one of our key friends who, who live in New York, I said to them, you know, when this church service is over, I'm going to see who this dude is talking about. Because I can't believe who he's <laughs> talking about is that good. And then I found out he was talking about me. And that, and that was, that was like shock. And what did you say to him after the sermon? Well, I was so moved by it. I just put it in the only way I could make it understandable to me and to him. And I said, Dr. King, when do you want me to leave? You worked in the movement for, for eight years. Were there times when Dr. King reminded you in a kidding way, oh, by the way, you know, you turned me down initially? Well, oh, to, thine own, to thine own self be true. I regarded Dr. King as a brilliant, hustling Baptist preacher, you know? And I had enough going on in my life. I didn't need a brilliant hustling Baptist preacher in my life, you know? But then he got to me because I had never, I, I mean, I just, he was extraordinary. And he, and, and, and uh, the more I tried to dismiss him, the more he, uh, he the more uh, he impressed me. In fact, I thought he was a little bit of a, Hollywood actor performing, a little bit Hollywood performing actor trying to impress me. But then I found that this guy is for real. So I, I might Absolutely. I might speak and quote a little scripture of Bibles that I can from the Bible that I can remember. But he not only is encyclopedic with the with the uh, the Bible and a lot of religious literature, uh, but he meant it and he understands it. You uh, were known and are known as one of the great unsung heroes of the civil rights movement. And as your book talks about one of the last lions, which is, a, you know, yes. that's a beautiful way of putting it. Yeah. And, and one of the moments that, again, away from the public eye that I've been fascinated about to hear you talk about is when you contacted Governor Rockefeller to get money for the people in Birmingham in 1963 who were in jail and right. needed to bail them out. And right. you go to the Chase Manhattan Bank. On well, I hope, first of all, I'll give you, give you a listen to some context. I had, uh, I was in Birmingham uh, 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 Friday and I get this urgent call from Harry Belafonte. He says, how, uh, how soon can you get to New York? I said, how soon do I have to be there? He said, as soon as possible. He said, why? Because the Rockefeller family wants to help. I said, what does that mean? It means you got to get to that. 
you got to go to the airport right now and try to get to New York because they want to they want you to meet them at the Chase Bank in New York tomorrow morning, which was a Saturday morning. Harry was talking to me on like Friday night. So I arrived I arrived late LaGuardia, called up the a number he gave me. It was uh, almost 1 a.m. in the morning, and I talked to a man by the name of uh, Lee, uh, I don't know, I can't remember his name right now, uh, but one of Rockefeller's closest people. Fast forward, the banks were, no banks were open on, no banks were open on Saturday in 1963. I don't know the day when banks started opening <laughs> on Saturday, but I can guarantee you none were open in New York City anyway in 1963. So I go into it, now I tell everybody humorously, you know, the only time I ever paid you know, you, you know, like most people, I'm, I'm just a lowly, average, you know, academic here. So most people, when I go into a bank, I just go to the bank, go to the teller. I don't even, I don't even give a second thought. I don't even know that. It never occurred to me to think about when I go to the bank, to think about a vault. But this time, because I went in and because I saw this big swinging door open, I said, holy mackerel, the door was like a foot thick, you know, and standing at the Standing at the uh, threshold, I mean, at this door, was David and Nelson Rockefeller. Uh, David reached up, pulled, pulled up a plastic bag full of currency, took the bag down, took out $100,000 in cash and wrappers, and said, we hope this can be of help. And I said, "My," I said, oh, geez, thank you so much. He said, but to, that man over there, see that man sitting over there? I said, what, what do you mean? That man sitting behind that railing on that up, uh, you have to go up and, you know, we, uh, federal regulations. No, you say, he didn't say federal. He said bank regulations require that we, you know, we account for this money. So I said, I understand that. So I go over and the fellow was sitting behind him and he's typing. And he says, yeah, Clarence? I says, what's your middle name? I said, Benjamin. He, Clarence Benjamin Jones. So I said, uh, what is this? I'm typing out a promissory note now. When he said promissory note, my law school uh, training and knowledge of negotiable instruments kicked in. So I said, a term or a demand promissory note? A demand. I said, excuse me? Yeah, he says, well, we'll, we'll take care of it. But the demand promissory note is that most states, the credit laws of most states, require that the banker gives the debtor, or the creditor, I'm sorry, gives the debtor at least some reasonable time. If you lend me $25,000 and you say, I want you to, be, re, to, to, to repay you the money, in New York State, you are required to give me, I, I don't know what, to, 48 hours or, or five days or something. You just can't say, I want the money to give it to me now, okay? Uh, in different states at different time periods within which a, 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 a creditor can demand when a debtor repays them. In New York State at that time, I think a creditor could at least had required to give the debtor five days written notice. It may have been three days, but in any event, it doesn't matter. I signed it like a dumb ass fool. And, when I, and I was upset about it. So I run to the telephone, the nearest telephone booth, and Harry Belafonte says, how did it go? Did you get the money? I said, yeah, I got the money, but you never told me. I'd have to sign a promissory note. And I said, a demand promissory note. Uh, 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 anyway, Harry, I said, do you understand what that means? I said, no, I'm not sure what it means. That they can call upon me to repay anytime I want, anytime they want. And he says calmly, better you than me. 
And I said, what? <laughs> I, I said, you got, you got 10 times or 15 times more money than I have. He says, well, don't worry. Just get down there. We'll stop it when you get back as it were. So I go down on a Saturday morning with all this money, and then I come back Tuesday. I'm in my law office, and lo and behold, there's a messenger there from the Chase Bank with an envelope addressed to me, pardon, personal and confidential. I open it, and there is this promissory note that I had signed. I, I turn it over, and it's marked paid in full. Well, I didn't pay it. One of the moments, again, away from the limelight that I've found compelling through the years is, of course, everyone commemorates the March on Washington, but you saw Dr. King up close as a guest in your house in Riverdale, yeah. New York, in the Bronx, yeah. in the weeks leading up to the speech. What were yeah. those weeks like for you and for him? Well, you know, we don't have enough time, but you know what happened is that I did not know it, that once, they, once the decision to hold the march was taken in the Kennedy, President Kennedy's office in late June of ninth year, June 21st to be exact, June 21st, 1963. I had to do something and go out of town for a day. And when I came back, I called my wife from the airport, God rest her soul, she's deceased. She said, I'm glad you called, honey, because uh, you, uh, you can't go to, you can't come to our house. What, what, I thought something had happened. While, while, while you were absent, I agreed that Coretta, Dr. King and his Coretta and the kids should come and stay in our house. And I've spoken to Cora and Peter Weiss. They're up in Martha's Vineyard, and we're going to stay in their house while the Kings stay in our house. I said, what? He said, yeah, the thinking was <laughs> it'd be better to have Dr. King nearby rather than in Atlanta, Georgia, or go from there to Jamaica or Bahamas that he normally does. So... So I went, I, I so I, he, she said, don't worry, I brought all the clothes I thought you would need to this new place, to this place we're staying. And so I never went back to my house until six or eight weeks after, after uh, June 21st or whenever it was held. Uh, so my home became um, New York, uh, R Riverdale, New York, Southern Christian Leadership Office North. It was the right. northern office of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, of which I was forbidden to come. The night before the speech, you're in Washington, D.C. Is there any notion of what lies ahead, or was it all no, kind no. of a what mystery happened, to you? In fact, you you hit on a very sensitive point. Uh, uh, in, in actual chronology, the March 60 years ago was held on a Wednesday, August 28, 1963. On an early Tuesday evening or late Tuesday afternoon, early Tuesday evening, I got a call from a group of Dr. King's most ardent, active New York supporters, a few from around the country. And they had tracked us down and found that they were both at the Willard Hotel. And they, and they tracked me down and said it was urgent that they have a chance to talk to Dr. King before he speaks tomorrow at the March on Washington. So I said, I don't think I can do that. He's in the he's in the hotel suite with Coretta preparing. Well, I know we tried the front desk, they won't put us through, but uh, we know you're in touch with him. So I got on the phone and I called Martin on the phone. I said, you won't believe this. 
there are a group of people downstairs, and they and there are people. They uh, they have a lot of suggestions as to what you should say, what I should say if I say anything, even what you should do and what I should do. So you have to you have to see them. He says, "I'm not going to see them." I said, "Martin, you have to see them." And I literally had to just sort of, I almost say, I almost had to use that thing like. Don't put me in this position. You have to do this for me, you know, because I know he didn't want to do it. So he came down and was sitting in this group of people. And Ralph Abernathy is one of the first people to speak to him. He says, Martin, people are coming all over the country to hear you preach. And a professor from um, one of the historical black colleges uh, immediately jumped on and says, no, no, Martin. That's not so. People have heard you speak many times. They're coming for a direction. You have to think about something that you, that you can really uh, discuss with them that will reflect that you've given some thought to why you're here and so forth. So, you know, it was very hard. It was very hard for me to... Sometimes, Bud, it's very hard for me to think about this stuff because... Oh, man. You know what happens when I have to answer questions like this? I'm talking to you, but there's a little gremlin sitting on my shoulder and says, Clarence, why are you, what did you do to, to, what did you do to, to deserve to be talking to Bud Michigan? You know? Hmm. I mean, what did you do to deserve? You don't deserve... I mean, Bud Michigan deserves to get the information. It's not about you, Bud. I said, don't misunderstand right. me. It's not about you, but it's about me. I understand. What did you, you don't deserve, in well, other words, they're implying, you don't deserve to have that longevity. You don't deserve to be here when all those other people are dead. And that's a heavy thing to carry, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. I, I can imagine. Uh, I'm always fascinated by people who are in positions that, 99.9999% of the rest of us will never be in. Mm. So as the day is happening and Dr. King speaks last, and he is saying in his speech, some of the words that you have written. Yeah. What is that feeling like? Was that? I was blown away. What is that? What is that feeling like to hear the words that you, some of the words? That I was, you start, I was, words I, that you I, you know, my, my first reaction, my first reaction was, Oh my God, he must have really been tired. Otherwise, <laughs> why would he be using what I suggested he consider? He must have really been so tired that as a fallback position, as an insurance policy. But while we're talking for a moment, you know what? You know what doesn't get enough signal? This is now you you know what really touches me most about the 60th anniversary? It's not the it's not the ref, not the reflections about Dr. King's "I Have a Dream" speech, which the first seven first seven paragraphs I didn't know he was going to use them, whereas exactly as I wrote them and he spoke them, it was ironically the person who spoke before him. The person who spoke for him before him was Rabbi Yakum Prince, president of the American Jewish Congress. Now, I am 92, and as I said, this is now September 1st. 
So in January 8th, I'm going to be 93, God willing. And I can remember almost like yesterday what Rabbi Yaakov Prince said. He said, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, when I was a rabbi in Berlin, in Germany, under Adolf Hitler, I remember many things. The thing that I most remember, however, the things that I most remember, however, are the silence and inaction of the good people. When he said that, when he said that, it was like, holy mackerel. And guess what? That's exactly the call to conscience that he calls us for today. All right? I am honored, indeed, I don't take for granted the fact that of our friendship and your skills. But I have to tell you, but I never thought that we would have this conversation 60 years after August 28, 1963. And I would have to say to you, I mean, I drink champagne and occasionally martini, but I, I've had nothing to drink today, okay? Yes, I am fatigued. I, what did I have for breakfast? I had a, uh, an egg, scra egg scra scrambled and, a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a something, uh, an English muffin of some kind. So I, and, 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 and they decaffeinated coffee. That's all I've had, and half a bottle of water. But the key thing I want to I've had no alcohol whatsoever. I've had nothing which could, okay, which would knowingly alter my mindset. That's what I'm saying. I've had nothing that I know of that would might alter my mood or mindset. And I'm telling you, in as cold, as calculated a way I can tell you that for this 92, 93-year-old black man in America to sit and tell someone of your um, knowledge and who you are, to sit and tell you that Bud Michigan I'm so honored to have you come on and, and uh, have me talk about Dr. King and things. But I want to tell you something, Bud Michigan. The thing that scares the bejesus out of me is what Rabbi Yaakov Prince said. Because 60 years ago today, I see it. I see it. I'm right there in Silicon Valley. I live on Sand Hill Road across the street from Stanford University. I, I see this. I don't know where... I, you know, let me put it this way. I kid, you know, I kid with my Jewish friends. I said, tell me, tell me, what have you done? I say to my Jewish friends, I said, I'm trying to figure it out. Help me as a black man in America. I got it. We were enslaved and white people have a fear. But tell me, what have the Jews done in America to make, I mean, you're only 4.5% of the population. What have you done to make so many people hate you? I can understand. I mean, I got it. I'm part of a group that was slaves and the descendants of masters are having problems reconciling with former slaves. I got all that. But what did you do? What is that? You get where I'm coming from. I mean, we, we're 12. I do. 13. So what did, you, what did you guys do to make them so angry at you? 
get this. I'm telling you, it's scary. Perennial question. One more question for you. And this is something I don't think I've asked you in the previous interviews. Yeah. And while we've discussed and you've spoken eloquently about growing up in the Philadelphia area and how your folks, domestics out of love, yeah. sent you off to a boarding school. Yeah. And the love of a mother to yeah. try and, you know, have better for my child. Yeah. But that the notion of social justice and racial justice, uh, is that something in your home growing up or in that boarding school? Is that a spoken or unspoken well, lesson that you learned early embedded. on? I was deeply embedded, you know, on in the interest of time. My parents were domestic household servants. Um, and then my mother had like a seventh grade education. My father had a fourth grade education, was virtually illiterate. But I was raised from the age of six to 14, 10 and a half to 11 months a year. I was raised by Irish Catholic nuns who uh, had this uh, Catholic boarding school for colored, for indigent colored boys, the Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament. You know what they used to say to me? And those other indigent colored boys, and they had some uh, Native Americans because they they uh, they uh, they had um, I don't know they they had um, you know they tried to service uh, um, Native Americans in Nabo I mean, in Arizona and New Mexico. But what they said to me, Master Jones, I'm the age of six to fourteen, ten and a half months a year. So I'm six years old, and I grow, and I grow, and I grow. Three to four times a week, Master Jones, be a good boy. We love you. Jesus loves you. And you are beautiful. Now, for those of your listeners, you know, they, 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 they may want to discount the first three. Okay? But I'm telling you, if you're a little... Colored boy looking up, this white face with these uh, silver glasses with their arms around you. You get six, you get seven, eight, then you grow up and they're still hugging you. Okay? And they're telling you from the time you're six into 14, 10 and a half months, 11 a year, Master Jones, be a good boy. Jesus loves you. We love you, and you are beautiful. Guess so. Guess what? When I leave the sacred confines, of, loving confines of the Catholic nuns, I go to public school in South Jersey, Palmer High School, 70% white, 30% uh, Negro. I still believe that. <laughs> I still, high school, I walked into high school, I was excused from taking any Latin because I had so much Latin. I still believe. I still believe that Jesus loved me. But most important, I, most important thing, I still believe that I was beautiful. Until this day, as you can don't 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 let, don't let my wife talk to you. You said that's my major problem. To this day, I'm 92. To this day, I wake up in the morning, look in the mirror, and I say, God, good Lord, Clarence, you're one beautiful thing looking at the mirror. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So you have to say that man is crazy. You have to say that man. No, that is one black man is totally crazy, or he has legitimately been, been brainwashed, but brainwashed with love and self confidence. 
And how precious is that to a young African-American kid growing up in the 40s and 50s in the United States of America? We don't have time. I've got I I go to talk to young black men, particularly those who are incarcerated. I go and talk to them. I talk to some young black men and boys today and I tell them, you know, they cry. You know, they cry when I tell them that story. And these are these guys walking around, you know, I'm in here because I used a clock or I used a shot somebody or or I did a deal. They cry when I tell them a story. Okay. And one young man said, I wish somebody had said that to me, like they said to you, Mr. Jones. Hello. You see what I just said? One young man, he's in jail. Young black boy, about 17, 18 years old, 17, 18. Mr. Jones, I wish somebody had said that to me like they said that to you. I probably wouldn't be in here. Hello? You don't say more? Anyway, before you say anything, I I want to know what you were eating and what you were drinking. You look so good, man. You don't age? It's, uh, no, I don't. No, absolutely not. No, absolutely not. Um, I'll say this one last thing about what you, what you just said. And it's what you told me once about, you know, when, when you went to wall street and worked on wall street, there was no ladder. That's right. When you worked on wall street. Right. And then others who came after you thanked you. And this is far away from the limelight. This is these yeah. this, you know, personal little moments yeah, I know, I know that make up a life that people right. who came, African-American young men and women who came after you on Wall Street, right. thanked you for oh, I don't creating want to that ladder. I don't want to embarrass them by naming one or two because I have, I say, they, they say things to make me cry. I mean, these are young, they're young, they're not young, the adult black men right. who are holding very high positions in finance and Wall Street and business day. They, 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 that's what they tell me. That's what they tell me. And I'm glad I could play some. You've affected of- many a life. Well, we'll see. you've affected many a life. Well, I'm, I'm glad. You know, we, we've seen. Yeah. Okay. The jury is no longer out. The jury is in. Okay. And, and we've seen it. All right, buddy. Next time. And, and this is only like a small percent of the fascinating moments of your life. Next time, it's and I gotta uh, get you a little bit more about Attica. Don't you go out and buy? First of all, I want you to buy my 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 uh, the Last of the Lions, okay? But that's so you can give okay. it to somebody else. I will, because I'm gonna send you my uh, the in, inscripted copy to you. So what you need to do is just send me your mailing address. Don't tell it to me now. Just send me your uh, snail mail okay. so I can mail it to you. Okay, I I will. Okay, it's always been a pleasure and a privilege, Clarence. Love you. Thank you so much. Love you too. Clarence Jones. His memoir is called Last of the Lions, an African-American journey in memoir. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. I'm Bud Mishkin. And this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on the journey.